Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. So this week, I chat with Katie Crombie, who is an exercise scientist and performance coach based in Melbourne. Throughout this episode, we chat through Katie's barefoot journey and the major role that her childhood growing up on a farm played in that, the fascinating comparison between horseshoes and human shoes and the importance of context with both, the power of listening to and learning from our body's signals and how exercise can become a keystone habit to support other aspects of health. This week's episode is brought to you by TFC Courses. We were lucky enough to tour our Feet Balance and Play workshop across Australia this year in between lockdowns and border closures. But for those who couldn't make it along, we decided to bring the workshop to them online. Inspired by our mates in Canada who created the TFC online workshop 1.0, we've created an updated course with loads of extra education and training to help you restore and rewire your feet, ankles and hips. If you suffer from foot pain, recurrent injuries, or just want to learn about how you can live the barefoot life, then this course is for you. For just $42, you'll get lifetime access to TFC Online Workshop 2.0, and if you use the code DOWNUNDER at checkout, you'll get 10% off. You'll find the link and all the details in our show notes. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Katie. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Yeah. So we, we actually met down in Melbourne earlier this year, I believe it was, when you came along to one of our workshops, um, which was which is a, a great sort of packed out workshop. In Melbourne, there seems to be such a, a big barefoot community down there because Melbourne's always gets like the best turnouts at the workshops. So um yeah, and then we just uh, stayed in touch through Instagram, and I've been really loving the stuff that you put out on Instagram. It's like a really great holistic mix of um, topics just around mindset and training and recovery and habits and all of the good stuff. So figured it'd be good to get you on and just hear more about your journey and your approach and, yeah, just dig into it all. So why don't we just start with, um, before we go, <laughs> that was a lot of different topics, but let's just start <laughs> with your story, like a bit, bit of back background about who you are, what you do, why you do it, and we can just roll from there. Awesome. Um, yeah, so you mentioned sort of the holistic thing, and I think that's definitely probably a product of how I grew up. Like I grew up in the country, mm. so nature was always such a big part of, you know, my life um, and a lot of different events that sort of have happened throughout my life to, um, you know, illnesses with my loved ones and family members have really made me consider health in a very holistic way. Um, So as difficult as that has been, uh, that's been a bit of a gift in a way because I do think of health very holistically. I think about mind and body and movement and all of these different aspects. Um, Yeah, so growing up in the country was, yeah, a big part of that Mm. and a big part of what sort of led me to the journey of where I am today. So I've gone through quite a strange uh, route going through music before doing exercise and sports science and now moving on to doing EP next year. Um, but yeah, it's been a very interesting, but, um, yeah, amazing journey so far. Yeah. And I think that's a very common thing that people really delve into a holistic side or the holistic sort of approach to health through almost through necessity, through not getting results um, or not not sort of resonating with the approach, um, the, I guess the traditional approach and not getting the results and then just being really curious and, and I guess in some cases really desperate to try and find some, some kind of other answer. Um, but it can take you, you know, the traditional model is very much sort of let's manage the symptoms of a sickness. Whereas the holistic, like you said, it's in a, in a way it's a blessing because you've been able to explore this holistic nature, this holistic health um, concept. And that brings with it so much more, so much more than just getting rid of symptoms. I think, you know, it's a lot more about thriving as a, as a person. That's exactly, yeah, exactly what it is. And it is about thriving. Like, and this is a huge approach I take with my clients as well is like, I don't want people to just live passively and just go through life and go through the motions. It's like, let's actually uncover everything that's going on because there's so much more to life when you unpack all of this stuff and don't just take Band-Aid solutions and and you really look at all of these aspects of your health. There's, yeah, there's so much out there. Yeah, 100%. And I 
I think that was where I started to struggle with physiotherapy was uh, people have a, a certain view of what physiotherapists do and what physiotherapy is. And they would come, generally they would come to you and expect maybe some hands-on therapy, um, you know, a diagnosis, some hands-on therapy and some exercises, but they wouldn't usually expect anything more than that. Um, and they certainly for most, for the most part, hadn't received anything more than that. But when you're, when you're a health professional, and this is something that we're so big on at TFC is if you're a health professional, you need to at least understand the health, like all pillars of health, not just your one scope. And obviously you need to practice within your scope of practice. (laughs) Uh, That's obviously important. But if you, if you just completely ignore all the other areas of health, then the people you're working with really miss out on a lot. Yep. Absolutely. And that's what I loved about that workshop that I went to with you guys in Melbourne was just hearing, you know, I didn't obviously get to meet everyone, but you very much get the sense that everyone there has probably gone through this journey of being like going through like a conventional approach isn't right. There's got to be something else out there. Then you find all the bits and pieces and you start working on all of these aspects of your health. Um, and just realize how amazing it'd be for yourself and for your clients. Um, so it was yeah, amazing to sort of be in that environment and that community and like almost feeling like, yeah, you find your tribe, I guess, when you think in that way. Yeah. And I think that that is something that is pretty special or really cool about the barefoot community is because to be interested in barefoot, the barefoot philosophy, I suppose, then you kind of have to be that level of open-minded and have that understanding of what I guess what we are as humans and what it means to be a part of nature whereas shoes are like a really tangible uh, example of how humans try to separate themselves from nature and you know literally insulate themselves from nature and so I think that is a really cool aspect of the TFC community is generally pretty much everyone is not only on the same page about bare feet um, or that, that concept, but also on the fact that we need to be looking deeper into, like if you understand that our feet need to be bare or need to be in contact with the earth and need all these things from a, an evolutionary level, then you also understand that our the rest of our body and the rest of our s- systems need that as well. And so with you, like you're, you're obviously interested in barefoot concepts and everything yes. um, based on, you know, coming to the workshop and, and all of your own research and, and, everything did that start for you out of you know growing up out in nature like I imagine you would have been barefoot a lot growing up absolutely like I spent my childhood just running around in bare feet all the time so we were really lucky Um, I grew up in Meetung so it's um, near the beach so we spent like all of our summer like staying on the boat for like you know the period school holidays over summer um, so just running up and down on hot sand, running on the jetties. Like I wow. never put shoes on. I had like <laughs> such tough feet back then. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we also uh, spent a lot of time up in the mountains as well. So Meetung's about two hours away from sort of like Mount Hotham area. Oh, right. So a lot of time up in the bush, um, running around, you know, in the paddock, beautiful river nearby. So, yeah, I spent so much time Jeez. barefoot um, and just – I think I've always been really lucky in this way. Like I feel like I'm a bit more of a sensitive soul. So I've always been like really noticed that connection with the earth and like very much craved feeling sand beneath my toes and and being barefoot and being connected with nature. So I think that's where that started. But I didn't know much about it back then. Like I think Mm -hmm. this was a long time ago. Um, But then we actually started barefooting our horses so horses are normally oh. shod um, or conventionally they wear, you know, metal shoes. Um, and we, some of our horses were not coping well with that. And then, so my mom went on this journey searching about, oh, what's the best option for the horses? And we found out about this barefooting thing. Um, so we started barefooting our horses. And then that was like the real catalyst for us going down a more holistic approach with our health. Cause mom was mm. a nurse. So she'd, gone through the whole conventional system um, and then you know mum has had cancer a couple of times throughout our life um, so she sort of wanted to find another way as well um, 
anyway, so the yeah, the barefooting the horses was a catalyst for everything really. Um, and then actually when you asked me this a while ago when we were chatting about this, um, I didn't I didn't remember this at the time, but looking back, I remember mum actually ended up buying my sister and I Vibrams when oh, we started wow. barefooting the horses. Really? But I was like 12 at the time and there was no way I was going to wear toe shoes. So <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> um I wish Vivos had been around back then. Maybe they were and I didn't know about it, but um <laughs> Oh yeah. They might have been very early days back then, yeah. Yeah. Um so that sort of yeah, that started that off. And then um when I moved to Melbourne to study music, I basically just disregarded all of this stuff. Like I got very stuck in what I was doing with music and I was barely spending any time in nature. I was stuck in a practice room all day. Mm. I was wearing high heels all the time, like for concerts and like heeled boots day to day. And my body didn't feel right. My mental health didn't feel right, which is what sort of made me change um, to doing what I'm doing now. Um, But yeah, it was just looking back, it's amazing how when you're out of touch with all of that stuff, like how awful your health can feel. Mm, hundred mm, percent. There's there's a lot in there. First of all, I'm super <laughs> super jealous of your uh, childhood. <laughs> I had a great childhood, mind you, but uh, but just the, the growing up in that area sounds amazing. Um, and it's it's a really good point that you you can have like a baseline level of you know, how you feel in day to day and like your baseline level of health and energy and all of these things. And over time, if you don't have that connection with nature or you don't get enough movement or you're, um, you know, not wearing, say, the right shoes or not going barefoot enough and or not sleeping well enough or whatever it is, you don't necessarily notice the next day, oh, this doesn't feel right. But over time, you just get this general feeling of malaise. It's just you just yep. don't feel right. And then it sometimes takes... Uh, I guess in a lot of cases, it takes that sort of big, um, a big wake up call of like, oh, what am I, what's going on here? I really don't feel good. Or maybe some, you know, maybe you do get a diagnosis of something or, you know, there's a specific condition. You're like, I really need to change something. But I think that's, that's something that I always try to get across to people is your body tells you first what's that, like your, your levels of energy and feelings of well being is like the, the best indicator of how you are, how healthy you are on like a cellular level, really. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I agree so much with that. But I think, I don't know quite how to describe it. Like so many people are just doing what they think they should. They mm. do what's accepted in society and they do what they need to do to fit in. And a lot of people don't have the self-awareness or the ability to reflect on how they're feeling. Like they just ignore their bodies and just keep doing what they think they should be doing because that's what yeah. they've been told. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we, we haven't been taught, no one's taught how to listen into their body's signals at school. Like we're, in fact, we're ironically, we're taught to ignore our body's signals to want to move and, and so on just to sit down and do our work and to shut up and don't talk to the person next to you because you're supposed to be working. Whereas the body is calling out for movement, it's calling out for connection, it's calling out for, you know, so many things in nature. Um, and we're sort of actually taught to ignore those signals funnily enough. And then, you know, and then if you take it even a step further, when we get such intense signals that we, we know something needs to change, like pain or like disease, then most of the medical system just covers up that with you know symptom management and you know painkillers for ex- are an obvious example yeah um and so the yeah like you said that there's a whole people don't know how to do this because the whole culture is around ignoring it or covering the signals up exactly but that's yeah that's a complete societal issue issue um like and it happens from childhood and then we just carry that in through into our adult years and some mm. of us have a realization about it um and I think that's the amazing thing though about the impact you can have as an individual like if one person you know in a group of friends or in a family starts to make a change in this area then it like puts a mirror up to everyone else and they start thinking about it for themselves often enough 
Um, and then that's how the, the change hopefully starts to happen slowly. Mm, yeah, exactly. And, and it's a very, I think it, it's kind of s- scary in a sense because people want to be just generally they want to be told what to do um, because it's like, I think they're used to being told what to do. But if you really, when it gets down to it, not there's not a single thing that's going to work for everybody. There's principles and, and basics and heuristics of, you know, get good sleep and um, move often and, you know, all of these things that obviously everyone can benefit from. But in terms of what really works, what type of exercise or how much sleep or what you need to do for your sleep quality, then it's all about self-experimentation and listening to those signals. And a good measure is if you don't feel vibrantly healthy and energetic each day, if you're not waking up easily with good energy, then something needs to change about your lifestyle, basically, or something could change to improve. But um, it does take a lot of self-experimentation and, and it's all the responsibility is on you, which is a little bit scary. It is scary. and it's, Yeah, it's scary and it, it's hard work and it takes effort and it it is hard to go through that process of reflecting on that and trying to figure out what's wrong because often that is, you know, you have to then think about, well, what are your values and, and what's your identity and what, what and challenge all of your beliefs to try and go through this process. And then also, like you said, like we just want an answer. We want to know what we're, we're meant to do. We have mm. all these health professionals who are supposedly meant to tell us exactly what to do. We do it and we get better and, yeah, it's a very hard process um, trying to figure that out for yourself, but I think it's kind of what needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's it's super challenging and and like I said, scary at first, but also it is really empowering. And once you, I guess, I think once you experience some of the effects that people talk about, because I think a lot of people are just like, what do you mean vibrantly, feel vibrantly healthy and energetic? Like, is that even possible? Like, does, do people do that? And it's not average, but it's definitely possible and it's definitely how your body should be functioning um, and how your body should be feeling if you are taking care of, of, of all of these aspects of health. And, and that's not to say, like, from my point of view, there's, it's not that I feel vibrantly energetic every day, but I also can trace it back. Like, if I don't feel vibrantly energetic, then it's generally I can trace it back to I didn't sleep that well for me I'm super sensitive to caffeine so if I have two coffees then I won't sleep as well and then I'll, I'll wake up you know sluggish the next day yeah. and and so at least I can go oh it was because of these factors whereas if it's all just a, if it's all just guesswork and oh, I have no idea why I feel like this then it's it's very overwhelming but then when, once you feel that oh, I didn't have any coffee and I slept better and I woke up really well today, then it puts the power back in your hands and that there's nothing better than, than that feeling, I think, of like getting, the, getting your power back. For sure. Um, I think there, I feel like there is a big push for that now. Like all of these, you know, the Aura Ring and the Whoop and all of these mm. data trackers that are coming out are really uh, – I don't agree with it all of the time, but it's definitely encouraging people to actually analyze like what's going on with your health, what affects, you know, what affects your sleep, what affects your training, what affects your mood and start to make changes to your environment and your behavior to try and better support your health. So sometimes it's hard to know, like if you're in the field, like how far reaching this really is, or if it's just like what you're surrounding yourself with. Um, like the barefoot thing as well (laughs) for sure I think I think we can get in our own bubble especially with the barefoot thing because if you go go for a walk on the street then 99.9% of people aren't wearing barefoot shoes but you're right it's it's I do think it is growing though um and I think that like you said those tools that are helping people bring awareness I was having this chat with Tom Tom Williams um the other day and he we were talking about those tools and how if you rely too much on them, then you you still are sort of ignoring your own body's signals. But if you use them as a way to tune into your body even more, like you, you look at your results and you go, okay, it says I didn't sleep that well. And yes, I don't feel that good today. Okay, that kind of makes sense. And and you use that to, to reference against your own signals and that's great. Um, but 
yeah, if you're just relying on, oh, this ring said for me to do this, so I'm just going to do that, but you're ignoring your signals, then then it's also problematic as well, I think. Definitely. I think no matter what you're tracking, like even if you're tracking your calories or your macros, like it's a really good tool for a certain point in time. But I think the ultimate goal for all of us should be to become intuitive with this. Yeah. To be able yeah. to listen to your body signals like we've you know been talking about. Yeah. And I think that it does take a, it does take a training period or an, ad, an adaptation period to, to learn how to listen to those signals. So it's, um, it, yeah, it, it makes sense that you can use some tools and some guidance. And, and I guess that's kind of where, you know, our roles as health professionals come in, like for you as a, as an exercise and sports scientist, like you work with clients and people I imagine would come to you with the expectation of getting help with exercise but then obviously well how, how do you find that goes like with with your clients like you know they're coming to you for exercise and are people pretty receptive to talking about other things some more than others yeah um i think i'm really lucky in that i guess because i'm just completely out there with my approach like if someone comes to me through social media for coaching mm. they they know what i'm about like i they know that i'm going to talk to them about mindset um, and mm. their sleep and all of this other stuff. Where I work um, with my face-to-face -face clients, I work at a, multidis a multidisciplinary clinic um, in the CBD. I get a lot of corporates coming in. Uh, yeah. So that's a more challenging population group because they've all got families, work's really stressful, it's a big priority to them. So it, we start out and it's just about the exercise journey and then I've actually been really lucky so far. Everyone's been really um, receptive to me sort of starting to uh, delve into other areas of their health. Then like I'll send through little podcast recommendations for them to listen to, to, to think about other things as well. So yeah, it's just the process is slow or fast, I guess, depending on who the person is. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to meet people where they're at. Like if you start flooding, if you if someone comes to you for exercise or, you know, physio in my case or whatever, and you start flooding them with all this information about all these different pillars of health and they're not ready for it, then it just kind of freaks people out. It gets very overwhelming. Whereas exercise, like it might be that someone just needs to start with getting their exercise right. And then that will help. That will, by definition, help them sleep better and will also help with, you know, possibly generally it'll help you want to eat healthier foods if you're exercising regularly and your energy throughout the day will be better. And and it does have a lot of overflow effects, but then similarly, food and sleep and so on will have overflow effects onto people's exercise. 100%. And I think that's where like exercise is a really high impact habit. Like mm. when you start doing that, like you said, it's going to affect so many areas of your life. And, you know, for people who have been prioritizing career and family and everything else above their own health, they come in and they exercise. And it's not just about the fact that we're doing deadlifts and squats and whatever else in the gym which is going to be increasing their confidence and and their self-efficacy and all of these things but they start to then identify as a person who values their health it's not just that they're mm -hmm. exercising mm -hmm. they're valuing their health because they're coming in and doing something about it so like you said it then bleeds over into other areas of their life yeah which i think is really important because i think exercise has has become a really well-known uh, avenue to improving health. Like it's people think generally when people think of getting healthier, they think of food and exercise, nutrition and exercise. And so as exercise professionals um, or movement professionals, then we have a really amazing opportunity to get people, you know, get their movement and exercise right. But then also, yeah, slip in, like hide the, the veggies in the sort of <laughs> the spaghetti bolognese kind of thing. Like people want the exercise, but then you can start giving them little tips on like, oh, well, this, you know, if you're, if you're sleeping better, your exercise will be even much better again. And then, and you don't have to, it's not like you have to be, become a sleep scientist to talk about that, but at least if you mention it and then, like you said, give them a podcast to listen to or give them something to learn in their own time. And if they're interested, they'll learn about it and then, you know, you're not forcing it down their throat, but they're actually, they're going, okay, this is an important topic. I'll learn about it. And then usually people make their own um, changes after that. Once they take control in that way, I think. Absolutely. 
Yeah, it's, it's amazing how that process works. And I think the most important thing when you're starting this journey with someone is spend a lot of time listening to them. Mm. I get them talking as much as possible and, you know, watch their body language. And you can, that's a big thing you can do when you're trying to, you know, broach some of these topics is like, you might notice through their body language, like they're just not into it at all. Like they start looking away or zoning out a little bit. Like I just remember that. I'm like, all right, I'm going to leave this for six months and we'll touch it later. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is, it is great how exercise can be that gateway, gateway sort of drug, so to speak, to opening up other aspects of health um, that maybe aren't as well, well known. Oh, there's not as much awareness out there about um, it's kind of, I, I like to sort of see barefooting in a similar way as kind of a gateway to the other aspects, the other pillars of health. Like if you, if you start, understanding uh the barefoot philosophy and want to go barefoot more then it's kind of the next obvious step is well maybe i should be spending more time on the ground and spending more time in nature and so it's sort of this gateway to all these other aspects that all really make a big difference when you when you add them all up yeah it really does it's again like it's a very um high impact behavior change Mm, mm. and so Actually, speaking of the barefoot stuff, I did want to come back to it and I I realized we glossed over it, but I'm really interested by the barefoot horse concept. Um, So is is it pretty much a similar narrative to humans where people who are, you know, very for shoes on horses are like, oh, they need the protection. Um, You know, they're maybe, is it because the surfaces that the horses are on are different or like what's the reasoning behind the, the shoes on horses? I honestly think some people don't have a good reason for it. It's just like, that's what people do. No, it's just what's done. But definitely um, there is a thought process that that it's protection for them. Um, Honestly, I think it's mostly protection. Like there is no other good reason to be doing it. Yeah. Because if you've got a metal shoe on a horse's foot, and like I think police horses have started moving away from it. You can actually get barefoot boots for horses now. Oh, because yeah. they're on concrete all the time like imagine stepping on a metal shoe and the impact that's going to be going through yeah. the horse's system yeah so they've actually started putting barefoot boots on so that is that's still a, a form of protection but it's um yeah much less impact with rubber boots right and so they so it is i guess it is a fairly similar concept to like yep. you know humans think their feet need protection at all times and i i see the argument a lot that oh, our, our feet weren't made to run on hard surfaces like concrete or, you know, walk or run on hard surfaces like concrete and so on, um, which is kind of just another way of saying my feet aren't adapted to that because I can run and, and walk on concrete fine. And I know a lot of people can mm. run for, like, I don't know a huge amount of volume, but I know there are people who can have, who have and can build up to very large volumes on concrete while barefoot. So a lot of it, I, it has to do with the adaptation. And you would just mentioned that having the shoe on can actually possibly even increase the impact. So because, because of the way, like, I wonder if it changes the horse's gait or um, it does. Yeah. So having a shoe, well, firstly, if you're shoeing your horses, you need to be getting them changed regularly. Uh-huh. Um, there, I've seen some absolute horror stories of, horses feet that have like it's terrible like how much they sort of grow through the shoes or the shoes get left on too long and horses are just limping around the paddock because their feet are so sore it changes the structure of the foot just like humans yeah um so typically their feet might end up a lot more narrow um the quality of the the hoof wall and the sole isn't as good um so they the the foot their hoof weakens um whole lot of stuff that goes on so when you start barefooting horses typically the feet go wider the frog which is like that bit triangle bit in the middle of the foot don't know how to describe this for non-horse people um (laughs) that uh increases in size everything improves when they start barefooting um so yeah it's just like the shape of the foot then spreads out again just like humans when you stop squashing it into 
yeah. certain size. That is fascinating because yep. this wasn't even on my radar at all. And then um, someone reached someone reached out to me on Instagram, and oh, I'm, I can't remember her actual name. I'm really sorry if you're listening, but it's strong and steady on on Instagram. I can't remember your your actual name, but I'm going to go find that out straight after the podcast. <laughs> um, so many people on Instagram, but um, she mentioned that she barefoots her horses, obviously, and then. I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. And it was only like a few days or a week later that you mentioned to me about something like that. And then I she was saying, oh, yeah, if you post anything about it, you got to be ready for um, like the, you got to be ready for people to like commenting and talking smack about how you shouldn't be barefooting your horses. And it just seemed there's so many parallels between the horse world and the human world with that. It is insane. It really is. Um <laughs> Yeah, there's like those almost separate camps um, and you can cop a lot of flack for it. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's gotten a lot better now, though I think it's a lot more common. Like I see a lot more barefoot horses nowadays than I used to. So, mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's, like I'm sure there's grey area and like just like with humans, there's context um, that's needed and I'm yep. sure maybe in some cases, you know, horses for shoes can be really helpful. And, and if you maintain them properly and you do all the right things, then, um, you know, it, it isn't an issue. But if you get, if you think back to just basic physiological principles, if horses have been around for however many years, I, I don't know the exact evolutionary history of the horses, but uh, if they've been around for at least hundreds of thousands or millions of years, then they're, probably don't need something extra on their foot to to sort them out like it's the same same thing dogs don't need shoes um you know no no other animal needs it basically and and you you mentioned that it changes their gait cycle it's interesting i walk along the walk or run along the river very frequently there's like an, an expressway and um heaps of people go for walks and runs and everything. And, and we see so many different styles, different gait styles, mm. so many, and they're so varied. And a lot of them are very strange to look at. And a lot of them are very beautiful and amazing to look at. And, and whether it's because I've been trained to look at human movement or whether I think you can sometimes just tell that something looks efficient and, and, it's just nice to look at. And I think that's why people are attracted to watching elite athletes and so on. Mm. Cause it's just nice to look at efficient movement, but to see so much variation in how a species moves, it sort of tells you, it gives you a hint. Like it, otherwise say to use an, another example would be like a bird or like say a species of bird, like an Eagle, you're not going to see that much variation between how an Eagle flies compared to another Eagle. Isn't it? But if you started putting weights on one side or, you know, putting weights on the wings of an eagle, then it's going to start looking different because that eagle is going to compensate for the the things that are on its wings that it just doesn't need. So I like to think about other animals because I think people kind of forget that we're animals too and that we've, (laughs) and that we've evolved and that, that, you know, if you look at other animals, like there's a reason why dogs don't wear shoes um and why dogs <clears throat> move so funnily when you do force shoes on them because yeah. they just they can't feel the ground and they don't know what's going on yeah oh there was so much in what you just said <laughs> <laughs> but like on the context thing like I 100% agree with that context mm. does matter matter um like with horses um I think race horses some of them are just using tips now so it's not like a, an entire horseshoe on the hoof oh, it's just okay. a tip for the grip because they're running around an oval potentially if it's a bit slippy or whatever on the grass. But again, that's not natural. Like putting a human on a horse's back and racing them. That's Mm. not natural. I wear Olympic weightlifting shoes when I do that sport. That's not natural to do those movements, but it works better to use those shoes in that hour that I'm training. And then I take them right off, you know? So contacts really does matter. And yeah. And like you said, people forget that we are animals. Um, it's funny when you try and get like I love incorporating a little bit of I'm going to say animal flow but it's not exactly because I haven't done the course or I don't know a huge amount about it but like doing bear crawls and and things like that and and people are like this is weird (laughs) like we should be able to move like this 
Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a good point. People are very when you get down moving on the ground, one, people are like, What are we doing here? And then two, after five minutes of doing it, they're like, Wow, this is hard. <laughs> like this is really tough. Like you you when I remember when I first started doing it, I was like you watch those you watch people doing locomotives like the animal flow people or, you know, the Edo portals and yeah. out of the world and so on and, and you're like, Oh yeah, that kinda it looks cool but pretty easy compared to like weightlifting or whatever but when you get down and do a lot of stuff on the ground it's like like you really feel the burn and but it is exactly right we we everyone should be able to move on the ground efficiently and fluidly uh, and the only reason we most people can't is because of the invention of chairs basically (laughs) and and yep. the fact that we don't have to move for our food anymore, really. Yeah, that is so true. We have, we have really messed things up for ourselves, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've, we've made, it's so, it's such a weird paradox because in so many ways we've, we've improved our quality of life and our life expectancy and all of these things. Like, it's so cool that we can just go and buy food rather than having to move all day for it to a degree. Like, it is, it is really cool. Um, and there's so many benefits to, to what we've been able to achieve, but also those benefits come with a lot of potential risks and and detriments. But, but the great thing is if you're aware of all of those, you can tweak a lot of things in your life. Like we have, I think the, the best opportunity where, when we're living today, the best opportunity to benefit from all of the things that society has done and also to avoid the detriments if with just a little bit of awareness and a little bit of like habit change you can you can sort of have the best of both worlds in a lot of ways yeah you can it, it's yeah it's awareness and education and I think there are certain certain fields that it's maybe never going to happen in um, and it is so hard when you you know do work in that corporate environment and mm you've got everything against you there depending on the culture of that office or that workspace. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot we can be doing. Yeah. And it's that the corporate world is kind of that classic example of, I guess, you know, desks, high heels, dress shoes, um, stressed out, you know, very financially focused and, and overworked. And I guess the sort of the, like, the antithesis of, I guess, a holistic health, like of the picture of holistic health. But even in the corporate and and those kind of worlds, the big, um, like rather I should say the the upcoming companies who are making big, I guess, waves in the industry, like for instance, Google, then they are taking a really holistic approach to the health of their employees because they realize that healthy employees one are much happier um they're more productive they generally will stick around longer because their working conditions are better and they feel like their company actually cares about their health because when you get down to it even though people have a lot of different priorities health really is people's own like people's main priority sometimes it just takes a big health issue for them to realize that it is their priority yeah, it so often is a health scare that kicks people into gear um, and that ends up being a good thing then because yeah. it needs to happen. Like yeah. unless you're aware of it earlier, that is probably going to happen to most people and then that's what's going to start the change. Yeah, and and I think that's where it's really – I think that's why I'm so passionate about – I mean, we're making our own little ways with TFC, but just finding health professionals like yourself who are on the same wavelength so that when people do have that health scare, if or when people have that health scare, then it's more likely that they're going to go to a health professional who has a more of a holistic view because otherwise people have a health scare and then they just get into this um, this machine of symptom management like we talked about before mm. where they're just... Oh, okay. This is your. This is what's happening with health. Okay, take these pills and, you know, maybe do some, do some exercise. Like eat better and do some exercise, but they're not actually 
taught really how to do that. Like it's one thing to say to someone, eat better food and eat healthier food, but if they don't know how to, if they don't have the skills of how to prepare and cook food, healthy food to make it yummy, then it's not going to be sustainable because they're just like, well, I don't want to eat boring yucky food all the time whether that's yeah. conscious or unconscious yeah exactly and this is why like I get very frustrated there's like a narrative out there that people like just need to get their shit together and just have some discipline and mm. just make it happen like stop being so lazy and then you think from an evolutionary perspective that like we had to hunt for our food we had to look after the family around us. Someone had to stay up at night and watch for predators. Like you had to move where you needed to go to just survive. And then now we're in this culture where you can sit on your couch and order food and have it delivered right to your door. And you've got to work for money and you've got to do all of this stuff. And then on top of that, now you've got to go to the gym and look after your health and, um, you know, turn off all the lights at night because lights are now a thing. So you need to do that to make sure you sleep well. And it's like so overwhelming for people. Mm, and it becomes another stressor. Exactly. So, yeah. and that's why, like, I think a couple of years ago, I was so dogmatic about all of this stuff. I'm like, I know this is the right way. Like people need to be living like this. This is how we're going to fix everything. And then you just realize that it's not achievable for everyone. And for some people, you know, their job and earning money has to be a priority because maybe they're the only one in the family doing that and they need to put food on the table. And, and sometimes health can't be everyone's top priority. So like you said before, like meeting people where they're at and trying to find one or two little things that are going to have the biggest flow and effect in people's lives and that isn't an added stress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's that is a... A topic that comes up frequently um, is just how many different things you do have to do in order to sort of quote unquote be healthy because because we're fighting against so much in the in our environment and culture. There's so much stuff that is kind of derailing our health that it's like wow that like I have to completely shift my whole lifestyle. But if if people think that then it does become a stressor and they, and I was the same. I got really dogmatic about a lot of different things when it comes to health and, and wellness. And, and it actually, I don't think I felt healthier back then, even though I was maybe doing more things more strictly and, and so on. I actually probably feel the healthiest I have now when, where I generally get most things right. And I know, I know what I need to do to feel really good. And I know, I know what happens if I don't do those things, but I'm relaxed about it and I don't sort of beat myself up if I don't if I don't stick to something exactly because if I think just taking away that extra stressor can be so huge for people and just be like just just work on this one thing. Like for me waking up um you know waking up at a, or getting good sleep and then waking up without snoozing if I do that then I know that it's going to set the tone for a really great morning and then generally a really great day. Um, and so if I generally, if I nail that kind of habit, then like, I don't really have to worry about anything else per se. Um, and even if I do snooze and it's like, Oh, okay, dang, what, what happened? Why did I snooze? Okay. Next time I'll just change something and it'll be all right. It's not like a, a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was the same. I got, um, like, particularly with food and diet, I got, like, so obsessed about mm. only eating real foods and stressing about what oils they were cooked in and things like that. Um, and I'm still really mindful of that, and I try and eat natural foods as much as possible. Um, but now, like, for the sake of wanting to just go out and have – you know, socialize with people, like I've, you've just got to let go of some of it because if you're spending all your time stressing about what you're putting in your body, it just completely undermines the whole point of, of doing that in the first place. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And the, the, that stress is probably worse for you than the thing that you're, you know, potentially eating. Like, um, that the body is so incredibly resilient, <laughs> like in terms of, if you think about the amount of stuff the body can handle before 
before something breaks down. It's 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 amazingly impressive. And and as long as you're doing the right thing sort of most of the time, like you can apply the 80-20 principle where if you're getting stuff right 80% of the time, like 20% isn't really going to make the biggest difference. And sure, if you're a, an, an elite athlete or like a, a CEO or someone who's like, like performance, um, high performance is your main thing, then you might need to be more strict and, and you might need to sacrifice that level of, relaxation and 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 everything but if you're just a normal person who wants to be healthy and wants to feel good most of the time and and also wants to have you know an open social life and not be so stressed out about everything then just relax off some of those rules like think about things as guidelines rather than like laws like yeah that that was that was a big thing for me as well like with food of like you know really only eating paleo or Mm. um you know a specific specific diet and and sort of got kind of dogmatic about it and would would probably even preach to people (laughs) who didn't want to hear about it and so on yeah and then it yeah just it's not worth the the extra stress and not worth the like there actually is really interesting research about how like the effect of your belief and mindset on literally how your body digests and interacts with food. Like if you believe, for instance, one really interesting study was around like they had two different groups and they gave them both the exact same milkshake, but they told one of the groups that the milkshake had, you know, a heap of carbs and sugar and ice cream and all this stuff that's really bad for them. And then one of them, one of the groups got told that they um, we're getting like a really healthy low carb milkshake and it actually changed how their blood glucose right rose and, and how the milkshake was digested, uh, even though it was the exact same milkshake. Mm. Um, and so your, the effect of your mindset and your stress on your digestion will be huge. That's yeah. I hadn't heard about that study, but that's incredible. But like the power of belief is amazing, isn't it? And that yeah. comes to, it's so funny that we get, even with like chronic pain and things like that, we might get told something by someone like, oh, you know, you've got lower back pain. You should never, ever flex your spine again. And then you start to believe that. And then Mm. there might be no damage going on whatsoever, but you continue to avoid that movement because you've got a fear of it because you've got a belief around that, you know, flexing your spine is going to make your back worse. Like, so it can work positively and negatively. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's probably the most powerful thing. And that's where a lot of the, the research is going, especially in physio research, like with, with low back pain, especially as an example, is how much the, the power of these, this conditioning and these beliefs make, uh, or how powerful that is in someone's outcomes. And, and some of the biggest uh, predictors of outcome, um, Besides, you know, you could have any kind of intervention, but the biggest predictors of outcome is whether you believe that that thing is going to help you get better and whether you have a really good relationship with your therapist or your, the person you're working with and whether you trust that person. Um, and so all of these sort of non-specific factors end up being so much more important than the actual structural problem that you've got or or whatever so it's 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 amazing it is that's a big thing I've learned throughout my studies and just working more and and working with different practitioners and learning from different people is like I think just my personality type wants to put everything in a box and have a system and an approach for everything and you get taught that you know you get taught the functional movement screen and you get taught all of these ways that everything's meant to be done and a program needs to look like this and hypertrophies between eight and 12 reps and all Mm, of this stuff. mm. And then at the end of the day, I don't think the program matters so much. Like you could take, you could write a completely different program to me for someone and we could potentially achieve the same outcome depending on, yeah, the relationship and their beliefs around movement and, yeah, it's just, I don't think there's any one perfect system. Yeah. And I was going to ask sort of like, you've obviously got such a holistic view on everything, but I don't, 
I know for myself in my uni course, we didn't really get taught that. We just got, like you said, we got taught about diagnosis and management of conditions and pathophysiology and, and all of these things, which are, which are important. Um, but no one presents like a textbook and you have to work with an individual. So was it like, were you always, like obviously you had that experience of growing up and, and it quite a natural um, viewpoint on that. But when you went through uni with exercise science, were you sort of quite aware that you weren't being t- sort of taught the whole picture? Yeah, I, <laughs> when I was in first year, um, I ended up in a lot of, uh, not arguments, but like debates <laughs> on the discussion boards with my lecturers. Because <laughs> right. like, they, they just give us this information. And then I'm like, but what about this side of the coin? Like, what about this perspective? And then I don't think they expect people to like <laughs> back chat them on stuff. Yeah. Um, and then eventually I was just like, this is too hard. I'm just going to know that I might have a different perspective on this or at least keep my mind open. And I take everything with a grain of salt. Like I try and keep my mind so open and consider both sides of the story now because I think you can find evidence for anything yeah um yeah. and something might work for someone that I don't necessarily believe in but it worked for them and yeah, yeah. so it was a, that was a challenging process for a uni and it's really not holistic at all even though I just did a um nutrition unit this past semester and it's um still going off the Australian dietary guidelines which definitely has its place um, but even like the protein recommendations are still incredibly low. And there is so much research out there now showing that eating high amounts of protein isn't going to damage your kidneys. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The whole world of universities is really interesting. And I think in general, they say there's like a, a rule that, uh, it takes 20, you know, 10 to 20 years for research to catch up to mainstream practice and, and for it to be taught at uni and then taken into clinical practice. Like you need to be ahead, essentially ahead of re- the research and, and almost ahead of evidence-based practice. And you have to have an open mind um, in order to explore any of these things. So it's, you know, for me, when I was going through uni, I just started listening to a whole heap of podcasts on like to and from on the way to and from uni. I had a 25, 20 to 30 minute drive and I just started consuming all this stuff. I was like, huh, there's so much more to health than just physio. (laughs) Um, And that was like, that was really great for me. But um, was there any, were there any like, I guess, big moments for you or, or specific things that made you like books or podcasts that made you sort of, uh, I guess you had that experience with your family and everything, which got you on that path. But I mean, I always like hearing about people's favorite books or things that like were big paradigm shifts for them. Um, there was, I think the catalyst was this, um, there was a podcast by this guy called Luke Lehman. Um, he was on the ATP science podcast, which I don't necessarily agree with everything necessarily now, but (laughs) he was talking about, um, personal trainers needing to know a lot more than they did and take your client's resting heart rate and blood pressure and um, look at HRV and look at all of these other aspects of health, get them doing aerobic conditioning to, you know, increase mitochondria at the start of their, their programming, don't just jump straight into resistance training and all of these different things. And at that point I just finished a because I had a gap between music and sports science for a year um, and I did a personal training course because that's a whole other story how I got to that. Um, and you don't learn anything about that. You don't – yeah, they're terrible courses. <laughs> um, yeah, you get the bare minimum. Bare minimum. Um, yeah. But that's, you know, it's the price point. It's what you get for it. Um, yeah. And then I was like freaked out after listening to that podcast. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to know so much more about health. So that's why like, I've got to go and do something else. I've got to do a university mm. degree. Um, so that was where that sort of started, I guess. And then I'm try- I'll try and think of a book before the end of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not everyone has ones that really stand out. Like, I mean, I've, I've read a lot and listened to a lot. And I think the cool thing about, about doing your own research is that you 
don't have to remember everything that you ever read. You know, like you can just, like I've just read so much and listened to so much and you just, just from doing that, you formulate your own opinions and connections based on like, oh, this book, if I take this book in the context of that book and what this guy said on this podcast, then it's sort of like all of these thoughts just formulate into your mind and, and become, you know, I guess a part of your, your worldview and your approach to things. And, and I think, I think it's just really important one, I guess for a takeaway for anyone listening, if you, um, if you are in the health world or, or maybe especially probably going into university or any university degree at the moment, then don't just take the university education, (laughs) like really like take it because the university education is amazing for providing a lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of baseline understanding of anatomy and physiology and so on. If you're in a health degree, but this would apply to any degree, but look outside of what the university is teaching you as well and, and find leaders in the field and find people who are maybe even saying things that are opposite to what your university is saying and, and just look for different opinions so that you can make your own opinion, I think. Yeah. 100%. And I think a huge part or a really important thing when undertaking a course like that or a degree like that is getting experience as soon as you possibly can. Like I was Mm, so lucky to mm. be initially coaching CrossFit um, and then um, starting my own sort of PT business and then now working where I do now is just getting that experience, putting that stuff into practice, getting other people's opinions and and learning from mentors. And, yeah, you, you get the foundations and the basics from your education, but there is so much more out there and it's just mm. changing so rapidly too. Like I can't believe like when I got into this three years ago, banded clams were like the golden child exercise of like rehab and now yeah. <laughs> it's changed so much in the very short space that I've been in this field. So Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And I I think if you're not regularly being challenged, like if your frameworks and your opinions aren't regularly being challenged, like in a deep way, then you're not looking hard enough. Like, because when I went through my, uh, like career, as I went through my physiotherapy career, then I started off at a certain job and I was like fully sold on the way they did things. And you know, really loved this, this approach and was seeing really great results. And then I started reading some different books that made me go, Oh, maybe I'm missing something here. And then uh, I went into my next role, which again, I was fully sold on and, and was like, Oh, this makes so much sense. I'm seeing really good results with this, which is pretty much not the opposite, but you know, very, a very different approach to what I was doing. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then I went to a course that really blew up the the way I understood what I was achieving with that with that role and so and they're they're quite challenging moments where you go oh maybe what I'm doing is not right or maybe the way I'm understanding this is actually completely missing the point and then you've kind of got a choice there whether or not to just ignore the new information or to take it on board and, and make it make sense for for the context that you're in and so I think it's just so important to challenge just challenge yourself on what you believe because like the belief, yeah, you you can form beliefs and opinions, but if you get dogmatic with them, then that's where the danger comes. You need to be open to changing them. 100%. Yep. That is, I think for anyone working in this field or any aspect of healthcare, you need to be open to have people challenge you to answer those questions. If you don't know the answer to the question to say, I don't know, but I'm going to look into that to just Mm. be completely open-minded about it. And that's, I really hate all the, like you see it a lot on social media, like arguments between people who have different opinions and it's frustrating because they just don't know what you know yet. Like they haven't got to that point yet. So they're not there. Let them let them find that eventually if they don't find it well then maybe they should have opened their mind a little bit and been willing to be challenged but it makes it really hard for young coaches and young practitioners because it can be scary to want to have an opinion at all 
because there's always people there ready to tear you down. It's um, it's tough yeah. right now. It is, and I think it, it's the dangers of dogma, really. And like, even in, I think even in the barefoot world, people can get quite dogmatic. And in the obviously in the podiatry kind of, I guess you know, traditional footwear world, and there's that kind of dogma and there's no point in the clash that of between those two dogmas. Like, it's just like, okay, what's where, where are we missing context? Like there's always nuance. There's always context. Mm. Barefoot isn't going to be right for everyone at every point in, in their life. Mm. Um, you know, and shoes aren't going to be the best thing for everyone, obviously. Um, but you need to find the context, you need to find the individual person's goals and, and their history and so on. And, there's just there's just so much for being open to different ways of doing things like uh, a lot of people can go down the barefoot rabbit hole and go well orthotics are just terrible and they should never be used but i'm sure orthotics uh, well i know orthotics can be used successfully in certain cases yeah. and you know especially if you've got a plan to reduce your reliance on them then yeah. it's great but if you need to get through your day and orthotics is the only thing that gets you through your day without pain and you're working towards not having them, then yeah, they're a great tool. But it, yeah, you just got to be, you just got to be radically open-minded and to be, to understand that context is king basically. That's exactly it. I actually remember asking you at the end of that workshop in Melbourne, because I was terrified about going mm. out and wearing barefoot shoes. And like, I only really started to make this transition this year yeah um, right and I asked you at the end like how do you deal with all the naysayers like what do you do about it because I I was scared to to go out there and and be able to justify my choices um yeah it was interesting <laughs> yeah well it is it is interesting because there is so many strong opinions out there and people are like oh you can't go like you can't do you can't train barefoot or run barefoot and and do all these things but I think what I said to you was just stick to the basic physiological principles yep. and um, and always just bring people back to context. Like it's it's not like you're saying everyone has to go barefoot right now. It's like uh, this feels best for me because my I've gotten my feet to a certain level of strength and mobility and I enjoy this. And then like you've said, you, you train with Olympic lifters on when you do Olympic lifting because in that context, it's much better to use lifters than with than barefoot shoes <laughs> um and so yeah it, I think I I do I love social media in the sense that it can provide a lot of cool connections but it does have its issues with that kind of it's just not the best place to have these nuanced discussions and and people the amount of oh, like you can just scroll through comment commenting sections and see all these arguments going on you can just see how clearly people are missing each other's points and they're just going back and forth and it's like it doesn't really get anyone anywhere <laughs> yeah it's almost like like living in that that gray area is not very sexy like yeah you know, people yeah. want to be like oh I'm the barefoot person or I'm the person that says you should deadlift with whatever you know flexed or neutral spine or whatever it yeah. doesn't matter and there's always yeah like you said context is key it always depends yeah no you're right and I've had that exact thought it's like social media the people who get big followings and loud voices generally well yeah they're generally the people who are speaking loudest about a certain mm -hmm. thing and they're not really they're not really having the discussions about context and nuance because they've got their beliefs and and then all the people that are attracted to that belief follow them and and speak really loudly as well and and reinforce yeah. it yep yeah and it reinforces it and so it is it's a little sad and and I think there is a role for you know obviously there's a role for forcefully um you know passionately talking about what you believe in um but I think it's just so important to to temper that with with a bit of humility and, yes. <laughs> uh, and like realize like for me like I've changed my mind over and over again about various things to do with health and, and movement and so on. But mm. I think once you find some, some guiding principles, like I'd be very surprised if I changed my mind about spending more time on the ground and spending more time in nature and, you know, these sort of <laughs> very basic things yeah. that, that just make a lot of sense. But yeah, I think as soon as you start to sort of 
believe something like almost blindly or or with too much passion then you it's good to question it and be like okay am i am i missing anything here or is there a context that would change how i would feel about this and generally that is the case absolutely yeah uh, well, that might be a good time to wrap it up, yeah. but I, I do feel like we could chat for ages. But, yes. Um, I reckon we'll have to have a, a follow-up round for when when we next make it back down to Melbourne or if we make it up to Queensland or something, it'd be cool to catch up for a bit of a, a move and play sesh. Definitely. And, um, maybe some, uh, I'm not super into Olympic lifting. I've done, it, <laughs> I've done it before, but maybe you can, maybe you can give me some tips. I'll strap into some lifters and... <laughs> When was the last time you were in shoes like that? Uh, oh, yeah, a, a long time. Oh, I've, I don't think I've ever worn lifters actually, so I've never been I've never been into it enough to actually get lifters. Um, so yeah, I might be a little uncomfortable doing that. But <laughs> hey, look, I'm I'm comfortable with discomfort. There you go. That's important. Yeah, it is. Um, but maybe maybe we'll just get up, get get together for like a beam session and a hacky. Though. Yes, that sounds very good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you been doing any hackersack by the way since the workshop? I haven't. No. Because I was yeah I was throughout lockdown I was on the farm so I had like uh, I was mostly mucking around with handstands on the lawn. Yeah. Um, oh, handstands are good, aren't they? Oh, so much fun. So good. So hard, but so good. And then yeah. now it's just mucking around on the beam again because I finally got a beam. I still hadn't oh. got one. Because Bunnings oh, right. wasn't open, basically. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, nice. So you sorted out a beam. Yeah, it's good fun, hey. Yeah. And it's, it gets addictive. Handstands and beam, like if you do those two, I think they both help each other as well. Mm. Um, there's something about learning to balance on your hands that it just it teaches you a lot about alignment and core activation and breathing and so on. And then likewise with the beam, if you get really good on the beam, your body awareness goes through the roof and then it helps with hand balancing a lot. So I think they're, they're a good combo. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, well, we can do handstands and we can do beam. but <laughs> and, then we can, and then we can record a podcast all about it. Sounds good. <laughs> um, actually, before we wrap up, just for, uh, I guess, where people can find you and get in touch, because obviously I think a, b- a big part of what I want to do with these podcasts is connect our community with coaches like you who are doing – you know, who are more holistically minded. So where, you know, where you're based and where you work from and so on, it'd be good to know. Yep. So I'm based in Melbourne. So I have my online coaching business, um, which I basically run through Instagram. So Coach Katie Crombie on Instagram. Um, And then I work out of Absolute Health and Performance, which is a clinic in Melbourne. So we've got three sites across Melbourne. Sweet. Yeah. So highly recommend anyone getting in touch with Katie if you if you like the sound of what she does. And and like I said at the start, the Instagram content is great, really good, inspiring stuff. So um highly recommend following. And and we'll chuck it all in the show notes as well. We'll we'll put um some links to your Instagram and, and the website and everything. So cool. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, James. Catch you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone.